0: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MT85 in Frederick, right next to Longshots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly for help. Call one 800 gambler
1: In a previous episode, we asked, How do you write a hit song? And it's a pretty darn interesting conversation about whether there's a certain template or key ingredients you need when you're trying to cook up a hit song. Spoiler alert. There is. (laughs) There are some common elements that hit writers turn to again and again. But this week, we're going even deeper. And if we answer this one, Clint, we deserve a Grammy. We deserve a Nobel Prize. We deserve some sort of graduate degree in metaphysics. Okay. Welcome to the age-old question.
2: I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman.
1: This show is sort of like Car Talk meets behind the music. Ooh, Clint, I like that.
2: Each episode deals with another question
1: in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college.
2: So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, where does a song come from? That's the age-old question.
1: First of all, Happy New Year, everybody. Man, it's good to be back. I hope 2022 is a big year for this podcast Come on, and for all of you listening. And we're starting 2022 with maybe the hardest, most abstract question so far. Where does a song come from? We're talking about how is a song born? One minute it's not there, the next minute it's there. But let's start with what inspired this discussion. Right. The incredible eight-hour documentary by Peter Jackson. About the Beatles. Yep. If you haven't seen it, it's called Get Back, and we highly
2: recommend it. Highly recommend it. We loved it. Yeah, it was, it was just a fascinating fly in the wall experience. You literally feel like you're in the studio with them. It's an incredible look at how these iconic songs come into existence,
1: both in terms of songwriting, but also how they plotted through to find the arrangements
2: that we all know, right? Right, yeah. It's it's one thing to have the kernel of a song, and it's another thing to see it become the song that you know. And it doesn't come into the world
1: fully formed. Rarely. That's part of it. Right. So an article in the Washington Post pulled together some reactions from various musicians that have watched it. Jeff Tweedy from Wilco said this, I don't think of it like any other viewing experience I've ever had in my life. It's really kind of intense and bizarre. I spontaneously burst into tears a few times just being able to see the exact moment a take I've listened to a thousand times was put down.
2: Incredible, Incredible. But it's
1: like the version. There's another quote in that article from Ben Bridwell, who's the front man of Band of Horses. He says, there's a vulnerability in writing in front of other people that extreme vulnerability, when you're showing your soul, the fact that they can do it among one another in real time, there must be just so much love between them. I love that idea. In this discussion, when we talk about where does a song come from, I think the word vulnerability
2: is a really important one. Big time. And in the case of Get Back, not only was it just the four of them, but there were camera people. There was Yoko sitting right there. there was the time. There was George Martin. There was... Glenn Johns, you know, like they're all sitting there, just right there. And, oh man, the highlight had to be Get Back, right? You're seeing it from the very beginning of that one. I want to take us on a little journey before we get to the
1: documentary. And as we talked about, the documentary actually shows the lads working on these songs. And we're in the delivery room as these songs are being born, right? But there are some great stories about songs prior to January 69. A lot of the songs came from constantly being around each other. And John and Paul would write every day. And especially in the early days, it was really eyeball to eyeball, as Paul has said.
3: I would say to people that out of, I think it's about 300 songs that John and I wrote together, we never had a dry session. We'd always come in and we never went away from the session going, ah, couldn't get it today. We always finished a song, which is pretty remarkable.
1: That's part of the answer that, where does a song come from? It's it's picking up a guitar or sitting down
2: at the piano and just doing it. Yeah. Right? And you and I have talked a lot about yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's as much inspiration as it is work. So they
1: were doing it, and sometimes in a very workmanlike fashion. And they were a sounding board for one another's ideas. For example, Paul writes the song Eleanor Rigby, right? He's thinking back to some of the elderly women that he'd observed as a child. And he's writing it, and he's coming up with this image of a vicar writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear.
3: Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear.
1: As he's writing the song, he calls the vicar Father McCartney. He's thinking, ah, it doesn't feel quite right. I
3: originally had Father McCartney, but when I came to finish it up with John, I brought it to John, and we were playing it around, and I said, "Uh, I don't want to to call this Father McCartney because it's like my dad. It just seems a bit confusing. And he said, no, it's fine, So I said, no, I don't like it. So I said, okay, let's change it. So we got the phone book, and we just went right down to sort of McCartney, 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 and looked for something, McC- something. And the next one was like McKenzie. I said, that's better. <laughs> that's, so, that's so good. So sometimes a phone book can be the inspiration. Father McKenzie, oh. wiping the from his hand.
1: Okay, let's keep going. So by August 66, burned out from the heavy touring and the fact that the audiences were screaming so loudly that they couldn't hear themselves anymore, they decided they were done touring, which left them able to focus on making music in the studio. So they became not just songwriters, but studio innovators. But because they weren't touring, they were also writing separately, but they were still influencing each other. John would write Strawberry Fields Forever, reminiscing about his childhood in Liverpool.
3: Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields.
1: And Paul would be like, oh, that's, that's quite a good idea. And he'd write Penny Lane, also about stroll down memory lane.
3: Penny Lane is, is a place in Liverpool that um It's kind of central when I was growing up, because it literally, it's a bus depot, we used to call it a bus depot. When John and I were writing songs later, we often used to just hark back to places that we both remembered, you know. And I came up with this idea for Penny Lane, there'd been a barber shop, which is still there actually, where you know those haircut photos, where you can choose what haircut you want, so, you know, that got the line, there's a barber showing photographs uh, of every head he's had the pleasure to know. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know. So that's him. And then on the other corner, Penny Lane, is uh, a bank. So I made up this story about the banker and the motor car and the children laughing at him. On the corner is a banker with a motorcar The little children laughing at him and then just down the road, there is a fire station. So we made a, a story about the bloke with the clean machine. In Elaine, there is a with an and in his is a portrait of the queen. I tied it all together. And then uh, the last verse is uh, behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, which is the Penny Lane thing itself. Behind the shelter in- They're just memories, really, you know, pulled together and uh, given a kind of slightly poetic treatment. And uh, it's really just memories of my Liverpool childhood.
1: They were just memories, really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's easy for you to say, Paul. <laughs> so Great song ever. So that's
1: another place that songs come from, right? Being able to tap into this collage of memories and feelings. Right. So in 1967... They make Sgt. Pepper's.
3: It was roundabout when we'd given up touring, and it was the Sgt. Pepper album that we were about to make. And I was coming back from America, um, just on a, a trip, just for fun kind of thing, uh, a holiday. And I was with a friend of mine, our, our road manager called Mal, Mal Evans, Um he was a big bear of a guy, you know, a great guy to sort of travel with, he was fun fellow. And I just started getting this idea um, that it'd be great for the band to kind of take on like alter egos so that we wouldn't have to record as the Beatles always. It was getting a little bit restrictive, like, you know, oh, here's a Paul vocal. Here's a John vocal. Here's Ringo's track. Here's George's track.
1: He's on a plane with Mal, the roadie, who we actually see in action quite a bit. And you love Mal. You
2: just love that guy.
1: (laughs) But here's another clip where Paul talks about how it was actually Mal who gave him the idea of Sgt. Pepper's.
3: I was with our roadie, Mal. He said, "But the Salt and Pepper. And he said, Salt and Pepper. I said, what? He said, Salt and Pepper. And I thought he said, Sgt. Pepper. I said, that's great.
2: That's a Mondegreen.
3: That's amazing.
1: That's another thing, an idea for a lyric, not just a lyric, but the whole concept behind arguably the greatest album of all time <laughs> came from mishearing something.
2: Had he heard Salt and Pepper properly, we never get Sergeant Pepper. I tell you that that happens so much with Peter Day and I. Hmm. It happens all the time.
1: Where you'll say something or no, he'll say something. He'll
2: say something and I can't hear very well. <laughs> and I'm always like, Did you say? He's like, No, but and then we write it down. That I that has happened so many times. And what's it called? A mondegreen. A mondegreen. That's when you hear something differently, like, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Right. 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 Or a there's mondegreen. a bathroom on the right. Right.
1: So Sgt. Pepper comes out in May of 67, and a lot happens in the coming months. In August of 67, their manager, Brian Epstein, dies of a drug overdose. And without the guiding hand of Brian Epstein in late 67, the band starts feeling this void, right? And Paul suggests an experiment that will ultimately become the magical mystery tour. It's sort of a disorganized, failed experiment in a lot of ways. The concept was that they would just make a film that was unscripted. They get a whole bunch of people on a bus, and they travel around for a couple weeks having an adventure. Despite the lack of focus, the album itself produces some great moments. Songs like, I'm the Walrus. I
3: am here. as you are he- bit of King Lear at the end of that too. Uh, that was live radio coming from the BBC, though they never knew it. When I was mixing the record, I just had a radio in the room that was tuned to some BBC channel all the time, and we did about I don't know, half a dozen mixes, and I just used whatever was coming through at the time. I never knew it was King Lear till years later somebody told me, because I could hardly make out what he was saying. But uh, I just sort of, it was, it was interesting to r- mix the whole thing with a live radio coming through it. Slave, thou hast slain me,
0: villain! Take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. Service of a
2: villain. You to the fighter of my mistress and
3: stabbed her to the
1: heart. Songs like "Fool on the Hill," "Baby Your Rich Man." Oh. And the title track.
3: Roll up, roll up for the tour.
1: A but we're getting sidetracked, which is easy to do with deals. But by now, these experiments are all part of the journey of soul searching. They're trying different things. And in 68, they go to India to study transcendental meditation with the Maharishi Yogi. While they're in India, they're back together again. And they have their instruments, and so they're writing a ton of songs. When they come back, they record those songs for what would ultimately be known as the White Album. Songs like Rocky Raccoon.
3: Now the doctor came in, stinking of gin and proceeded to lie on the table he said, Rocky, you met your match and Rocky said, Doc, it's only a scratch and I'll be better, I'll be better, Doc, as soon as I am able I was riding on a little moped to see my cousin Betty and it was a moonlit night I said, wow, look at that moon when I look back the bicycle is now here and there's no way to get it back up. So I'm hitting that pavement. They smashed my lip and everything, bleeding away. I go, hey, Bert, don't worry, but I've had an accident. (laughs) And Then she said, oh, my God, ring the doctor. I think it was around Christmas time. Well, he was pissed (laughs) today. I think you need a couple of stitches. I'm going, "Okay, have you got anesthetic? No, I've got a needle and thread and he's trying to thread the needle. Right. But he can't, oh, can't see it. Yeah. He's seeing a few needles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Betty takes it off him and she threads it. So he was the doctor's <laughs> thinking of <laughs> him. Yeah. I never forgot him.
1: Back in the USSR.
3: I'm back in the USSR. You know how lucky you are, boy. Back in the USSR.
1: And oh, bloody, oh, bloodah. Here's Paul on the Howard Stern Show talking about the origin of that song.
3: We used to go to the clubs Mm -hmm. late at night. And there was a friend of mine who I befriended in the clubs. He was an African guy. He was called Jimmy Scott. And, you know, we would jive together just, hey, man, what's going on? And he would say, oh, bloody, oh, bloody, life goes on, (laughs) brah. Yeah, man. yeah, Yeah, man. You know, and I just loved this. And I would go, oh, bloody, Jimmy, you know. So uh, I wrote the song... In Lyrics first or music first? Together. Together. Yeah. Which is kind of often how it happens. You know, you just got some chords and you, you, you make a song up. And one thing I always love about the intro there, that piano intro. So fast, too. It's like... Well, what happened was me, George, and Ringo were kind of slaving over this. Right. And John wasn't there yet. John, he was late. Yes, again. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, he's busy. <laughs> Come on, God knows what. So we're not getting anywhere with it. Chinga, 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 chinga. I was thinking, oh God, this isn't. It's not happening. And John comes in to the studio. He says, "What are you doing? What, what's happening? What are we, you know, are we working what, what, on? What are we working on?" I say, oblady oh, He goes, "Oh, oh, that one." He goes over oh, to the piano. He goes. Alright, walking well, in a uh, uh, he goes din, da, da, din, da, din, 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 din. just like that. And we all fall in behind him and go, Yes.
1: So this turn of phrase that Paul hears inspires a song. Again, it's just being a sponge open to these inputs,
2: right? Of just Sometimes it's just hearing a phrase. Yeah, Ringo had a ton of these expressions. Right, he would just say things wrongly. Right, he would just say the wrong thing. Like,
3: now Ringo, I hear you were manhandled at the embassy ball. Is this right? Not really. Someone just cut a bit of my hair. What can you say? What can you say? Oh, tomorrow never knows. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Write it down. Hard day and night. Uh, eight days a week. Right. Like, they, they, that's an amazing, and that's one of my favorite things about the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. 24-8. 24 I right. love that. Right. Anyway. Another song from the White Album is
1: Dear Prudence. So John was, while they were in India, was nominated to help another student of the Maharishi who had, in his words, gone a bit barmy, <laughs> meditating for three straight weeks, Here's Paul telling Rick Rubin about it on the great series McCartney Three, Two, One. There was a
3: girl there who was called Prudence Farrow, and she was Mia Farrow's sister. The word got out that she was in her chalet and wouldn't come out. So we all sort of wanted to go over, and John was playing and singing this to her. Dear Prudence, won't
2: you come out, play? You come out and play? Right. <laughs> No real mystery there. It's just he's just saying what everyone's thinking. Yeah. So one of my favorite Beatles songs
1: on this album is I Will. Who
3: knows how long I've loved you? Do you know I love you still? Will I wait a lonely
1: lifetime? You can hear in this early demo of I Will, it's just Paul. And a stream of consciousness riffing. He's got the kernel of the idea, but he's just allowing his brain to just flow.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, baby. Ooh, no.
1: White Album comes out in November 68. Although it's a productive time, they basically feel like that they are coming into the studio as the backing band for a John song, or sure. they're backing up Paul on his song. So in December, they're talking about what could we do to get back <laughs> to what to feeling like a band again? And they hatch this idea that they'll do a live concert, but they'll come together and they'll film themselves being a band again and writing the songs and at the end of the time they'll perform the songs live with no overdubs with no that's the whole that's the whole concept yeah right because for the last 18 months it's all been overdubs basically all right so that project ultimately gets shelved but then it's put out a year later when the beatles announced that they were done and that film was called let it be and there was an album put out to accompany the film's release but there were dozens of hours of footage and audio that sat untouched for 50 years. And Paul and Ringo and Yoko and Olivia Harrison get Peter Jackson to go through it, restore it, and share it with the world. And that is this eight-hour documentary. But as we talked about, you see these songs emerging. We see George sharing a new song that he's been working on called Something. He's stuck on a line. Attracts me like... And John says, just put a word in his filler.
3: What could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes in your head each time attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. Yeah, Yeah, but I've been through this one like for about six months.
2: Six months and nothing's gone? I love He says (laughs) months. Months.
1: Months.
3: Attracts me like a pommy
1: We see that that's John's process, right? Which is don't get stuck. Just push through. Put a filler in, right? We see Paul sitting at the piano with Mal Evans standing next to him and he's working on The Long and Winding Road.
3: Done it all the pleasure from the many ways I tried. But still late. They... I've had lots of pleasure but said better, you know. Yeah. I've had many pleasure, I've had much much pleasure. Yeah. You left me waiting here. A long, long, time ago You like standing better? Well, it, yeah, it, put weight in there than standing here So it, it would be...
1: We see John's song, Don't Let Me Down, which they've been working on, playing again and again. It's not gelling quite right. Don't
3: let me down.
1: But then Billy Preston shows up. He sits down and immediately provides the shape that had been missing. And John says, It's great.
3: You're giving us a lift, Bill. We've been doing this for days.
1: (laughs) We see George. Helping Ringo develop a song he's been working on called
2: Octopus's that was, Garden. That was really cool.
1: We see Paul pull "Get Back" out of thin air. Paul strumming his Hofner bass like a guitar, and he's just stream of conscious riffing.
2: remains is a lot from that initial stream of consciousness yes like a lot of those lyrics are like he tweaks them but they're right there from the very beginning what's amazing is as you say we're we
1: the Beatles are sort of catching up with us like we know where they're gonna go right they don't know they don't know yet
2: yeah it's incredible
3: Nights, great.
2: side note on get back Ringo wasn't playing that drum beat right for the first the dun, 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 right. right for the first like and then there was a moment where he was playing it but we didn't see that we didn't moment see him where come up they, with they that. talked about that moment and that's for me that song that drum beat is the coolest part because it's, it's such it's an not unusual what play it, it's yeah. not what you play But what was so cool is seeing who brought what idea.
1: Billy Preston shows up. So one of my favorite comments, Clint, that I've read about this was a tweet from Morgan Enos. He's a writer for Grammy.com. He writes that in Get Back, we see with our own eyes that Paul is open to the primal vibrations of the universe, pulling songs from the ether. And that's a big part of it, right? It's just being open. We use the word vulnerability earlier,
2: but just being open and this is it for me because all the great songwriters have said this exact same thing. You work on the craft, right? There is craft to it. Yes. You, you, you work for years on how to craft a verse, chorus, bridge, right? Those are the sections of a song. And the more you work, the better you get at that thing. Yes. But when it comes down to writing a great song, they all say that they're just a conduit to this thing that just plops out of the ether into their body and, and they have, they have enough skill at this craft, at this point, to be able to put it into a song form. Right. But they, they all say the exact same thing. Tom Petty says, I don't want to know where it comes from because I don't want it to stop. But the, they, they don't want to dig too deeply into what is actually happening because they don't want to monkey with it in any way. You're so right. Here's a clip of John describing the aim of transcendental
1: meditation. It could be describing the approach to songwriting accessing a non-judgmental subconscious part of the creative mind you know you
3: just sort of sit there and you let your mind go whatever it's going doesn't matter what you're thinking about just let it go you don't will it or use your willpower then the aim as opposed to sitting and thinking or anything Uh, is to reach a point in the sense where you have no thoughts mm Is it right so the
1: word inspiration comes from the greek word god breathed or divinely breathed into The Oxford English Dictionary defines inspiration as a breathing in or infusion of some idea, purpose, into the mind, the suggestion, the awakening, or creation of some feeling or impulse, especially of the exalted kind. So this idea of like inspiration that something is breathed into you. Wow. Picasso described the non-judgmental subconscious brain like this. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist when he grows up. In other words, we're really good at accessing the freedom of the brain as a child. But logic and reason and self-doubt, these things get
2: in the way. Filters. Filters that everything has to pass through.
1: I've been thinking a lot about this idea of where a song comes from, Clint. In part, because you and I have been writing a ton of songs lately. And it was for a project. We can't talk much about the project, but we would get together and just work days, right? Where the yep. goal of writing at least a song every day. Mm-hmm. And we did. Yeah. And it's exactly as you describe it, that that it's about putting in the work,
2: but then getting out of your way. And, and, and simply putting your hands on the instrument, right? That's part of it. It's like getting in there and... Fiddling around, right? Like right. just allowing yourself to be completely free of plan yes. and just playing the instrument. So, another reason I've been thinking about it, where a song
1: comes from, is because I listened to Malcolm Gladwell's new audiobook called Miracle and Wonder Conversations with Paul Simon. It's a fascinating profile of Paul Simon's creative process based on something like 50 hours of conversations that Gladwell had with Paul Simon over a couple of years. If you're a fan of Paul Simon, I highly recommend it. But I also recommend it if you're just interested in the creative process. The title of the book, Miracle and Wonder, obviously is pulled from The Boy in the Bubble.
3: These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance
1: call. But it also is a perfect way to describe this mystery around the birth of a song, right? Paul Simon talks about the mystery throughout the book. And the feeling that he gets when he's able to tap into that creative magic. He talks about it's a chemical high. Uh-huh. It's a chemical high when you're able to access that mystery. How do
3: you get there? How do you make yourself feel
2: that chemical high that you feel when you make something that you like? We recently experienced that Yes, in one of these writing sessions that we're talking about. Yes, I left that place. Buzzing. Yes. Not like any other buzzing I've ever really experienced. It was like I was soaring. It was incredible. Visceral experience. In another chapter, Clint, he talks about writing the boxer
1: and one line in particular, a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises.
3: I've,
1: I've always loved that line. Yeah. I, I never, I like singing it. I like the way it, It sounds. And I've wondered, like, what did he mean? Pocket full of mumbles, such are promises.
3: I think it kind of came out of uh, pocket full of marbles. And maybe I said, well, there's no use to say marbles, so I'll say, oh, mumbles. Oh, that's better, you know? Pocket full of mumbles, that's a nice, you know, nothing. Such are promises. All lies and jest. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Mm-hmm. And that's the really good line of the, maybe the whole song. Mumbles. That's better. I don't know what it means,
1: but it's better. Yeah. That's so awesome. E- so like Paul McCartney arriving at Sgt. Pepper from Salt and Pepper, it's like sometimes it's the,
2: what's it called? Mondegreen. The Mondegreen. Yeah.
3: And that's, you know, part of the great joy of it is because it's a mystery. You don't know why that jumped into your head, but it's not important. The thing
0: about it is, is you say, ah, yeah, I could use that. That's a good thing.
2: I love that mystery, too. It is everything to me, personally. I don't know where they come from. I've looked at this systematically for a number of reasons. Where do songs come from? They can come from a lyric. They can come from a musical idea or they can come from a rhythmic idea, mm. right? Those are where, like if you're going to start a song, you're going to start from one of those places, whether it's a melody that just sort of creeps into your head or a lyric idea that creeps in your head or starting a track, meaning sitting at the computer, I'm going to write a song, I like this feel, this drum sound, bring that in and start writing from there. So tempo, mood, all those things. And that stuff can be very scientific, very planned out, very orchestrated right. being like, okay, I'm going to write a song at 114 beats per minute it's in a, minor, in a key. minor key. And it's going to be this feel right. Rich, have you ever written a song entirely without an instrument? Yes. Like lyrics, melody. And then you go back and figure it out and be like, what chord? And then you try to keep it in the same key so that you don't forget it. You're like, what, what where, where? you find the chord the chord. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any examples?
1: Yeah. There's a song from my very first solo record called night opens the record is called night opens the song is night opens i wrote it on a, a plane yeah melody lyrics everything was written 35000 feet and it plopped into your
2: head and then you wrote it on your phone it was, was that, pre, it was pre yeah. i wrote it on a on a literally on a napkin, napkin. don't even say it you did yeah <laughs> that's, so that's why it's only two verses
1: <laughs> so good you ran out of space i ran out of space night
3: opens <laughs> Shattering's out Backfires on the avenue. This red light on bleaker. This tongue lost the speakers.
1: hard getting over you. Sometimes a
2: song will come really quickly, mm-hmm. and then other times I have to wrestle it to the ground. Of course. I started looking at some of my favorite songwriters. Yep. And their process. Yeah. And John Mayer has a good video on YouTube where he talks about songwriting as it's like matching socks.
0: Hmm. One sock is the music, one sock is the lyric and not just the lyric, but the lyric and the concept. Music is very easy to come up with. Words are harder to come up with. And coming up with words and music that match each other are very, very difficult. So the, song, the for me, songwriting is I can always play music and I can always write lyrics, but to find the stuff that goes together, then you got to sell them. Oh, goodbye rain Goodbye sorrow And goodbye shame I'm heading out west with my headphones on Holding a flap with a song In the back of my soul But no one knows I just found out a ghost left town
3: The queen of California is stepping down,
0: down
1: When you're writing a song, does the
2: music usually come first? Usually, but there is... I I wrote a song last year entirely in my car, 100% start to finish with no instrument and then went inside and recorded it. Lyric and melody. Yep, lyric and melody. So that's another thing. A song can come from a concept. Mondegreen stimulates concept, right? Right. You hear something differently. Salt and pepper. Salt and pepper or... You hear a word or a phrase, and all of a sudden your brain starts going down that path. And that path would never have been found any other way than mishearing something. Mm. Like, there's no way Sergeant Pepper falls into your head, right? Right. It it has to. There's there's a nugget that is given to you, and then that sends you down this conceptual path. Like, I overheard somebody at Mad River Glen saying, you know, you're going to make a great ghost someday. I was like, oh my God, I just... Typed it into my phone, and then that whole concept became a song that Pete Day and I wrote. A lot of the the stuff for my personal songwriting comes from overhearing something or talking to somebody, having them say a line, and then I just, I mean, you do probably do too. It's like notes, endless notes in the phone. So this is a theme that keeps coming
1: up, right? This idea of being vulnerable, being open Mm -hmm. to the suggestion of creativity or Mm -hmm. something that if you're closed-minded
2: or closed off to... Whatever that thing is, you miss it. You miss it. And boy, they come every minute of every day. I'm obsessive about it currently, where anytime I hear somebody say anything, even remotely interesting, I write it down on my phone. Right. Because that's the seed. That's the beginning of my next song. What you just
1: said is a perfect segue to my next
2: thought. Okay. It comes from Brian
1: Eno. We've talked about him on the show before. He's a musician, composer, record producer, maybe best known for his work with... U2. U2. He talks about a framework for songwriting that I'd never heard of before, but I think it's really powerful. He says, About the time I first started making records, I was also starting to become aware of a new sort of organizing principle in music. Like many people, I'd assumed that music was created in the way that you imagine symphony composers making music, which is to have a complete idea in their head of every detail. And it's sort of the architect principle, designing the building and all its details and then have it constructed. So then he goes on to say in the mid-60s, about this time he started making music, he saw a shift in songwriting and composition from the architect to the gardener where the architect stands for someone who carries a full picture of the work before it's made to the gardener who plants the seed and waits to see exactly what's going to come up. Hmm. So Brian Eno explains, For me, this was really a new paradigm of composing. Changing the idea of the songwriter from somebody who stood at the top of the process and dictated precisely how it was carried out to somebody who stood at the bottom of the process who carefully planted well-selected seeds to hopefully watch them turn into something.
2: That's amazing.
1: Another articulation
2: of this idea of being open. and Let's talk about collaboration, too, because collaborative songwriting, where does a song come from, is being open to somebody else's idea of that same concept, yes. which is a, is, a, is a total skill that not everybody can do. It is a skill. Like you can sit
1: across the table from a great songwriter who, for whatever reason, can't
2: access that collaborative mojo. Mojo. Right. Yeah. Then there's no, I don't know how else to describe it, but like being open to the universe, but then being open to the idea your buddy has and just doing the work. Because, like I said before, doing the work gives you a platform to be ready to accept the great song. Because every time you sit and write a song, you're, when you finish, you're like, what just happened? How did that, I always think like, I always listen back to, on, in my car on my way home at, from a studio when I recorded something. I'm like, how did this happen? How right. did this, where, why, how? So
1: where does a song come from? It comes from being vulnerable,
2: being open to inspiration. And listening. Being open, meaning like you're you're ready to accept it, but also like engaging with the world around you enough to like hear what other people are saying so that you can mishear it or so you can grab a nugget. Like really being diligent about writing down what is around you. I, that's my biggest way to do it. And being prepared to put in the work. Yep. Oh, and then there's also surrounding yourself with a group of trusted confidants that you can bounce things off of. And that's another thing that we see in Get Back.
1: And it's not just the members of the the four Beatles. It's when Billy Preston gets there,
2: that was what was missing. Sure, yeah. And that took them across the finish line. Yeah. Or even George Martin, I mean, doesn't do it as much in Get Back. He wasn't as involved in in these sessions. But like being open to that feedback and that, like, arranging.
1: Maybe John Lennon said it best, though. Here's David Bowie at a concert in 1983, so three years after John was killed, remembering what John had said about where a song comes from.
3: I asked John one day, how do you write your songs? He said, it's easy. You just say what you mean. You put a backbeat to it.
1: You just say what you mean, and
2: then you put a backbeat to it. Isn't that the truth, though, man? When he says it like that, it's like <laughs> anybody could do it. That's incredible. I think the best songs come from personal experience. If we looked at the massive list of great songs, I bet eighty to ninety percent would be our personal, personal experience songs—the ones that stand the test of time.
1: Here's another Paul McCartney interview where he's talking about how songwriting allows you to work through what's happening beneath the surface.
3: You work your things out and songs. One of the great things about writing songs, it's almost like a therapy. You can go in kind of angry or sad and you put all of that in the song and it kind of makes the song better because it's real feelings in it. And when you finish the song, you feel a lot better know it's just a
1: place where you can work things out you know deep feelings you know but again he's talking about being open and being vulnerable Mm -hmm. i keep coming back to this this idea of being vulnerable and i think you don't have to be paul mccartney Mm -hmm. to be in touch with the primal vibrations of the universe like anyone who wants to write a song or a poem or paint a painting needs to just do it.
2: Just do it. Really. But the more you do it, the better your craft becomes. And then it, you're able to harness that, that openness. That's what makes great songwriters is someone who has put in the time to understand how the process works. Right. Mixed with this openness to the inspiration of the universe that comes through you.
1: It's a great blessing in my life that I've been able to do this and work through it, feelings in my own heart and head, but also to experience that magic that I experience when you and I sit down and write a song or when yeah. I sit down and write a song with someone else. Like that is a, as Paul Simon said, it's a chemical reaction that leaves you with a high.
2: Yeah, and a spiritual thing too. Yes. Like that magical feeling is as spiritual a feeling as I think the human experience can have let's go write a song all right i mean i think at some point we should write a song for this podcast that's a great idea show you firsthand what happens in the process (laughs) what do you wait wait (laughs) wait i mean we said it was a lofty task to to do it but i think we did it i think i think i think
1: think we got to some real truths yeah i think it was real we hope you had fun, as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another the age old, old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook,
2: The Age Old Question.
1: We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments.
2: But let's be kind people
1: yeah
0: no hating no hating by now you know that sound it's the sound of the home depot but what about that sound you're listening to a set of ge appliances complete with all you need to keep food fresh dishes clean and everything else stress-free Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE Appliances. Right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store online for details. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really. We have a bike translator. Okay, so this bike says she is struggling with her place in the motorcycle community. <gasps> Well, she says she hasn't peaked yet, but she's having a little epiphany. Okay. Oh, that maybe life itself is the peak. Hmm, interesting. In my experience, I found that- no, so I just translate. Not allowed to have opinions. Got it. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat?
3: Would they shop? Would they
0: shop? Would you kill?
3: Yes. My mom is dead. My mom and right there.
0: From Airship.